Thanks for joining us today. I'm Rob Parker, lead pastor at The Plant Church. Our vision is to know Christ and make him known. If you are interested in getting connected or if we can help you in any way, email us at info at theplantchurch.org. Definitions of success. We're kind of a culture that thinks a lot about success in different ways. Think about how we spend our time, our resources, our money, our energy, everything. Everything we do in one way or another, whether we realize it or not, we're trying to get some version of what we think success is. It might be pleasing other people. It might be trying to become the best version of ourselves, reach our goals, become famous, make lots of money, be content with where we're at. All of these things are coming out in these songs and other ways. There's even a quick look at the New York Times bestseller list or other self-help book lists like that will show that people are so interested in figuring out how to live the best life possible. How can I be successful? There's books that are pointing them towards changing your habits to reach your goals or uh, understanding your emotional world and being more self-aware so you can just simply become a well-adjusted, mature adult. All sorts of questions are being asked in these kinds of books, and people are hungry for them because they're rising to the top of bestseller lists. People are asking these questions all the time. What does it mean to be successful? What do you think Jesus would say it means to be successful in life? How do you think he would define success? He actually gave us a definition of success, I think, in John chapter 15, And he said this. I'm just going to pick a few of the verses out of that chapter. He he says to his his followers uh, right before he died, he said, I am like a grapevine, and my father is the gardener. And he cuts off every branch of mine that doesn't produce fruit. And he prunes the branches that do bear fruit so they will produce even more. Yes, I'm the vine. You're the branches. Those who remain in me and I in them will produce much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And then he says this, and this is really where I think his definition of success is. When you produce much fruit, you're my true disciples. This brings great glory to the Father. So Jesus uses this analogy of a grapevine in a vineyard to describe to us what success looks like to him. If it's like we're like a branch and we're connected to a grapevine. And we have one job, and this is our whole definition of success, according to Jesus, is remain connected to the vine. That's it. And we know that we're doing a good job, we're successful, according to Jesus. We know we're remaining connected to the vine if we're producing what? Fruit. Fruit. That's what we know. So Jesus' definition of success in many ways is very, very simple. But how hard is it to remain connected to Jesus? Think about how busy last week was. How hard is it to, as we were singing, becoming more aware of his presence, being attentive to how he wants to guide our lives? How many of us are control freaks like me, and you want to be in charge of what you're doing in your day? You don't want to be dependent on the Holy Spirit. I struggle with that every single day. I make a decision and go, I didn't even consider if that's something like God would want me to to do. And this analogy is really helpful for us if we want to think about this framing of success. It's really helpful for us uh, when we start thinking about the fruit of the Spirit. And here's why. 
When Jesus says that we're going to produce fruit when we remain connected to him, that's the definition of success. He uses this Greek word, karpos. Can you say the word karpos? Karpos. You're all Greek scholars now. Congratulations. And karpos, it doesn't mean fruit like, oh, I want to eat a piece of fruit. Uh, it's, it's referring to like a fruitful harvest. Uh, it might literally be used in our modern day in English as as uh, harvest, but think about it, you could think about it a lot in terms of like when you're reaping the fruits of your labor. That's kind of how you can think of carpos. We're not talking about literal fruit, but we're talking about something really good, really beneficial, really good and enjoyable that's coming out of whatever I was doing. In this case, remaining connected to Jesus. Remaining connected to God is producing this thing that's really amazing, really enjoyable in life. And and Jesus says that is success. That is success right there. It's describing this abundant life where uh, you are enjoying the fruit of remaining connected to God. And also, not just you, everyone around you is enjoying the fruit of your life, of you remaining correct, connected to God. And so this is really helpful when we come to this, uh, this idea of the fruit of the Spirit because this word karpos is the same word that the Apostle Paul used when he writes the letter to the church of Galatia. And that's where the fruits of the Spirit are, are written about, in, in this letter to this church. Paul wrote this letter to a church in this region of modern-day Turkey. Think about it roughly as central Turkey in modern day. That's what Galatia was, that area. And these people were really confused about what success looked like. There were uh, some different uh, streams of Judaism and Christianity that were influencing this church, and they were being told by Paul one thing, and then they were being told by these other folks another thing, and this other group of folks were giving them this really long list of do's and don'ts that defined their, their success and defined it, well, no, 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 stop that, start this, don't do that, do this. Uh, many of them were being told uh, in, in their context, you need to be circumcised, That was a very Jewish practice, and if you weren't, then you weren't truly following Jesus. So they they had some really uh, strict things like that 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 they said had to be done. And so this church was really confused about what success was. Uh, and not to mention, they're in this, they live in this culture. They're not uh, primarily Jewish Christians. They're, they're Greek Christians. So they're growing, living in this culture that has all sorts of other definitions of success. Make sure you pay homage to the right gods. Make sure you invest in, in, these, in these things. These are going to give you blessing. This is going to make you successful. This is going to make you fruitful in life. And so they've got all of these different messages coming at them. And they go to Paul and say, Paul, you're the one who first told us about Jesus. What is Jesus saying makes a successful life? What do we need to do? And so Paul gives them this whole letter, talks about all these things, and kind of the more theological, conceptual basis for why he's going to say what he's about to say. And, and what, in this passage we're going to read, this part of the letter, is he's pulling on the same concept that Jesus was talking about. And Paul uses the word karpos here to describe the fruit, the harvest of the Holy Spirit. And and so he wanted to make it really clear, this is what Jesus says is a successful life to you, Galatian church, and to us reading it today. Uh, And so he's going to do that by contrasting Jesus' vision of what success is 
versus what happens when we try and make success in our own strength and our own power. Does that make sense? So that's about what we're going to read right now. That's the point we're at in this letter. So let's read uh, Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 to 23. It says this, So I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. Then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. And the sinful nature is, is when we're doing things in our own strength, our own power, is what he's describing. Verse 17, the sinful nature wants to do evil, which is just the opposite of what the spirit wants. And the spirit gives us desires that are the opposite of what the sinful nature desires. And these two forces are constantly fighting each other, so you are not free to carry out your good intentions. But when you are directed by the spirit, you're not under obligation to the law of Moses. That's that do's and don'ts list that I was talking about. When you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are very clear. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these. Let me tell you again, Paul writes, he says, as I have before... Anyone living that sort of life, trying to do things in their own strength, is what he's talking about here, and those are some of the fruits of that kind of life. Anyone living that kind of life isn't going to be inheriting the kingdom of God. But then he says this, but the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And there's no law against these things. Let's just pause to pray before we keep going. Holy Spirit, I really believe that everyone in this room today wants to truly find success, fulfillment, satisfaction, call it what we will. Holy Spirit, I really believe that, and I believe that, that through Jesus, we've been provided the best way to live. And I just ask, Holy Spirit, that you would just uh, lovingly just speak, speak to those that are here today, that, that we would be drawn into a new vision of success today, but also throughout this entire series. We'd be drawn to a life that really lives in the fruit of true abundance through the Spirit. And so we ask that you do this work in us, and we open ourselves to this work this summer. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So this is what Paul has written to, uh, to this, this church. This is what true success is. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These are the kinds of things, the kind of fruit that come out of the life that Jesus was talking about when the branch stays connected to the vine. This is what the fruit actually looks like. This is how you find success. It's not something that you generate through your own power, through your own strength, through your own self-discipline. It's something that you allow the Holy Spirit to guide you in and through, and it brings a true sense of fulfillment and success to life as these things are happening. So what we're going to be doing during this series is just walking through 
each of these characteristics of the fruit of the Spirit. Notice, by the way, it's singular. It's fruit. It's not fruits of the Spirit. We don't get to, like, pick and choose some of these, unfortunately, because I think I'd throw patience out the window sometimes pretty quickly. Uh, it is one fruit. It is a, this is the complete harvest of a life lived connected to God in the Spirit. Does that make sense? And, and so we're going to look at these because these are the characteristics of a life that is filled with the Spirit and depending on the Spirit. So today we're going to talk about love. It's the first one, and in many ways, love kind of sums up all of these in some way, in way, shape, or form. Um, let's talk about the word love for a minute, because uh, it is used in so many ways in the English language, right? Uh, I might say I love my wife. Ron Burgundy says I love lamp. That worked for some of you. Some of you don't get it. That's okay. I'm, I'm content. I just wanted to use that reference. Uh, I love my children. I love pizza. What do you love? Did I hear chocolate or shopping? Maybe both. Everyone's like, both of those, please. Yes. Yeah, we love all sorts of things, right? Some of us might love our job. Some of us might not. But some of us might love our job. Some of us might love our home. Some of us might love our family. But do you love all of those things the same way? No? If you did, let's schedule a time to meet. I'm concerned. I'm just joking with you. But yeah, we, we use the same English word for love, but we mean it totally different things when we say this, right? So in English, we have one word for love, which is super unhelpful when we're reading the Bible, uh, because the Greek language has at least three different words for love in, in its language. And there's one in particular that's used in the Bible, but let's look at some of these words that get used in the Greek language for love. These are not necessarily all in the Bible, but they're in the Greek language that Paul would have spoken and written in often. So the first one is eros. Eros, eros, depending on how you pronounce it. Uh, this is where we get the word erotic. You can probably uh, uh, imagine what kind of love this is referring to. Right? This is, has come to be known as sexual love, but it's, it's actually a little broader than that. Um, it's precisely, it's focused more on fulfilling any kind of longings or desires, or even you might call it cravings that you have in some way. Um, if I'm really craving a burger, there's a form of eros involved with that. So it's a, it's a broader definition, but it, because of the, the idea of longing uh, and it built into it, uh, it became really closely associated specifically with sex and, and romantic sexual love. Uh, the Greek goddess of love, Aphrodite, uh, was a goddess of sex, fertility, beauty. In reality, really, she was the Greek goddess of eros, a very kind of specific uh, form of longing and desire. And it took a lot of what happened in, in the Greek society where when Paul was writing these letters is this idea of eros was really, really strong, uh, not unlike our, our culture today, but actually, honestly, way worse, way more intense, uh, and, and way more without any kind of boundary or, or rules around it. Uh, and uh, you'd be surprised how, res uh, how much restraint we actually have in our culture today compared to Roman culture. Uh, it, it's, that's another sermon for another time. Um, 
But it, what it was doing in that culture, it was taking God's idea of, of sex, which was a beautiful creation, a gift, and it used another, and what it did is it took another person and made them an object instead of an equal partner in, in sex. And, and so Paul is not using this word when he's writing love here, Right? He's using a different Greek word, so he's not using eros, because this is one about uh, fulfilling what I want to get fulfilled uh, in, in any different way. My personal urges, cravings, longings, desires, that's the eros love, and that's not the word Paul's using here. There's a second word that gets used in the Greek language a lot, and it's phileo, and this is another kind of love. Uh, this is where the city Philadelphia comes from. It's the city of brotherly love. This phileo love is this brotherly, sibling, uh, deep friendship, companion kind of love. Uh, someone who, who is a great friend, someone that you have especially high admiration for, you have mutual respect for one another, there, there's a, a shared kind of mutual benefit in the relationship in terms of um, you, great conversation, you help each other out, you get each other to see things differently, you're there for each other in the hard times. This is phileo love. This is even sometimes the same kind of love in some ways that you might have for a child as they get older and they become in some ways like a close friend, hopefully. Um, and, and this kind of, of love is, is mutually beneficial, uh, but it, it, you're receiving some kind of benefit from the relationship. You're getting their respect, you're getting their time, you're getting their input, whatever's going on. And this kind of love actually shows up uh, in the Bible. They don't use the word love in the New Testament to describe it because the, the translators try and be very careful with that to distinguish for us. But the idea of phileo, love, and in the Greek language, it's actually used in a negative way, believe it or not, to describe a relationship between Herod and Pilate. And Herod and Pilate are two people in the, the gospel stories of Jesus that both uh, did not like Jesus, did not like his ministry. Pilate was the Roman governor, and Herod was kind of the fake Jewish king that had been installed by the Romans as like a puppet king. And, and so they had a, kind of like a not a great relationship with each other, a lot of political intrigue and, and at each other's throats with a bunch of things. But they became phileo friends, the Bible says, over their mutual disgust of Jesus. And so they, they found a common friendship, common bond um, around uh, their mutual hatred of someone. So phileo is not always good either. It can be good, but it has to do with some kind of mutual shared respect. Oh, I like you. It's more of, I like you because you hate that person too, is kind of what it is. It can also be a good thing, but this phileo is, whenever you see the word love in the New Testament, this word phileo is not what's being used. It's not describing a mutual admiration, shared relationship. There's actually a third word for love, and this is the word agape. And agape is the Greek word that you see. Whenever you see the word love in your Bible translated into English, you can think agape. And this is the kind of love that the Bible is talking about. This is a kind of love. This is amazing. This is a kind of love that gives completely without regard for whether it will get anything back in return. It is a love that gives and cares without considering any kind of benefit that might get, come back to me. Very different than, um, it, you know, people think about karma all the time. Well, if I do good, then good will come back to me. That's not agape love. If you're doing it out of, I know I'm going to get something good back, 
we've not got agape love. It's closer to like phileo love. Does that make sense? So, so this kind of love that gets talked about that God gives to people, people are called to give to each other, even to enemies, is agape love. It's a self-giving love, not a self-possessing love. You all with me on this? So what kind of love is that that is completely self-giving, has no agenda, everyone's got an angle, everyone's got some kind of agenda behind their back, don't they? Like, something's off here. I'm suspicious already of this agape love. True Christian love is exactly this. It is is a love that is self-sacrificial. It is self-giving. It is not self-possessing. And and it is something that is is given to others uh, without the expecting of anything in return. There's no necessary benefit. And even goes so far as to say, loving your enemies, agape your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, Jesus says. It is when those who are actually actively trying to hurt you, harm you, and destroy you, yes, even give self-sacrificial love to them. We can all go home now because none of us can do this. No, that's not where the story stops. But how, how do we live in this love? Let's unpack this a little more. What does this look like? This is a really challenging kind of love, isn't it? Anyone else just have the song right now? What is love? That's just stuck in my head this whole message. All week as I've been preparing. I'm full of songs today. That's all right. Uh, but, but what I want to do is Paul, in another one of his letters, he unpacks a little bit more of what agape love can look like. And, and what this, when we're connected to Jesus, connected to the Spirit, the fruit of love in our life, the harvest of love in our life, is going to look a lot like this description he gives in another one of his letters to a different church. And it's in 1 Corinthians 13, 1 to 3. And I just want to make a few quick observations about this kind of love from this passage. And the first one is this. This agape love is the greatest and ultimate goal in following Jesus. When we are called to follow Jesus, we are called to love. Not eros, not phileo, we are called to agape. We are called to agape one another. When the greatest commandment is given, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, it's the word agape. Without any thought, you ever thought about loving God without any thought of getting anything in return? That's not honestly how I think about my relationship with God a lot. God, I need something from you. Whether it's salvation, I need provision, I need healing. There's something in it where we're like, I just need something from you, God, right now. And God loves to give to his children. Don't get me wrong. But have you ever thought about giving agape love to God without any thought of anything in return? Have you ever thought about giving agape love to your spouse, to your friends, to your neighbor without any thought of return. This is the greatest and ultimate goal in following Jesus. I love this. In the beginning of 1 Corinthians 13, Paul's writing, he says, if I could speak all the languages of earth and of angels, but I didn't love others, I would only be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Then he says, if I had the gift of prophecy, And if I understood all of God's secret plans, if I possessed all knowledge, and so this person's never wrong. Think about this. Always know the right answer. If I had such faith that I could move mountains, if I had all of that, but I didn't love, I would be nothing. If I gave 
everything I have to the poor and even sacrificed my body. He's talking about dying for the faith there, persecution. If I did all of that so that I could boast about it and I still didn't have love, I would have gained nothing. By the way, that tells me that you can give sacrificially and still not do it out of love. It can be out of selfish motivation. That's a challenge. Why are we doing what we're doing matters. Why we are doing what we are doing matters, not just what we are doing. Think about that. Love, agape, matters above being able to speak any kind of language, be able to prophetically or theologically know all of the right answers and know exactly all of God's mysteries, Uh, having faith that's so strong it can move mountains, Uh, being able to give everything you own without a thought to the poor and die for the faith, and zero of it matters if you do not love. If I do not love, none of it matters. How does that reorient things about your faith? Does it reorient anything about your faith as you're thinking this morning? It reoriented it for me. I was very challenged. When it comes to the the passage about the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, all those things, one commentator said this. He says, Paul does not write here about spiritual gifts being the fruit of the Holy Spirit at work in our lives, does he? He says, he doesn't write about that as proof of a spiritual life. And he says, perhaps it's because the fruit of the Spirit can't be simulated, but the gifts of the Spirit could be. You can fake the gift of hospitality, probably for a while, and you just have resentment growing in your house, in your heart, because you have all these people in your house. There's no love in that. Love, agape love, trumps everything. Jesus even says in Matthew 7, on judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name. We cast out demons in your name. We perform many miracles in your name. All things that we're called to do and and have the authority to do as believers, yes? They're saying, Lord, we did all those things. And, And Jesus says, I will reply, I never knew you. Get away from me, you who break God's law. You know, you could be exactly right about everything, but because we do not love, we're still breaking God's law. You might have perfect theology, but if you have not loved, your theology is now heresy. Or at the very least, it's really terribly confused and hypocritical. Love is the greatest and ultimate goal of following Jesus, when the Spirit of God is at work, success, when we're connected to the Spirit of God, connected to the vine that's Jesus, and fruit is flowing in our lives, agape will be on display. Agape will be on display in us. That's the ultimate call. Second, love honors people as difference. Difference. Just continuing on a little further, Paul writes this about love. He says, love, you've probably heard this before, love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. It's not irritable. And it keeps no record of being wronged. It does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. 
This list of love's attributes is honestly so challenging to me. The, the first part is really challenging because, because I, I, I'm someone who spends a lot of time studying theological things. It's part of my job. And I might know a lot of stuff, but if I haven't loved, I've still got nothing. Now, this part's really challenging to me because just on a human personal level, like love is, there it is, patient and kind. This is what love looks like. It is patient and kind. And I'm like, whew. Anyone else feel that? You feel that? It's not jealous. Boastful. It's not proud. Rude. I'm going to stop right there. I don't want anyone to get depressed. But, but this really, Paul is describing the core idea of agape. Do you hear the self-giving language that Paul is using to describe these things? It takes a lot to be patient and kind sometimes, does it not? You have to completely deny yourself, deny what you want, deny your agenda. He even says that love does not demand its own way. We have to deny that, let go of that, and give of ourselves in a way that honors other people as difference. And why am I saying difference? I'm making up a word here a little bit. What do I mean by that? This is a kind of love that is giving to other people without any thought of return, right? People are getting honored as an independent self. They're getting honored as someone who has a separate existence apart from us. They, they, are, they are people that are being honored and respected as someone who has their own life going on, not simply as extensions of what we would like to see get done. Are you all with me? So it's honoring people as difference. Uh, Pete Scazzaro in his book, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, he borrows a term for this from this Jewish theologian named Martin Buber. And he calls this kind of honoring people as an independent self, Buber calls this an I-thou relationship. And I-thou relationship. In an I-thou relationship, I begin to see people as made in the image of God just like I am. They're in the image of God, I'm in the image of God. And because of this truth, we call them a thou. That's the language that, that he's using here. Therefore, he says, uh, they are deserving of respect, being treated with dignity, and, and I can't objectify them or use them as a means to an end. So there's an, a unique, separate existence, and we have to enter into an agape, self-giving relationship whenever we come in contact with another person. Are you all with me? This is important here. Listen to this. So, for example, when we respect and honor others as difference, we need to respect when a person tells us no. Sometimes I don't like to hear no, or I don't like to hear that can't happen. I like to go, but what about this? What about that? And there's a reasonable thing of asking some questions and have you considered this? Have you considered that? That's totally fine. But at some point, we're going to need to respect someone's no. And that can be very difficult. Sometimes we need to consider other people's feelings and their perspective when we're making a decision that might affect them and not just making the decision. We need to respect people as a thou as a different from us, as someone who is 
made in the image of God and has an independent self-life that we need to respect, cherish, and honor. So the opposite of this I-thou relationship, uh, Schizero notes, is an I-it relationship. And an I-it relationship is where we do not love others well. We don't use agape, self-giving love. We don't see people as difference. We don't honor them as difference. And we think of them as useful for our own purposes. This is about motivation here. Scazzaro provides a very helpful list of examples. He he suggests a few here. This is what an I-it relationship would look like. I walk in and dump my work on my secretary without saying hello. I move people around in an organizational structure at a staff meeting as if they were objects or subhuman. Here's a big one. I talk about people in authority as if they were subhuman. I treat my wife and children as if they are not in charge of their own freedom, dreams, autonomy. I expect them to be the picture I have of them in my head. I am threatened when someone disagrees with my political views. I listen to my neighbor's problems and help them with chores around their house, hoping they'll attend the Christmas outreach at church, and then they don't, and I move on to someone else. These are examples of an I it relationship where we are not uh, in the relationship or, or with them in a space of love. We have uh, needs or agendas or things like that that we are trying to get met in that. And this is not what agape love is. It's not the work of the spirit when we are happening, when we are in these situations. And, and often when we're in these I-it relationships, and I think we, we honestly all, we all have these. I, I, I run into uh, seasons in my life where I'm, especially when I'm tired and I'm particularly weary, I-it relationships are just way easier, right? Because everyone just do what I say and it'll be all fine. Get out of my way, right? An I-thou relationship takes a lot more time, a lot more patience. We probably will find we have less capacity for things because we have to treat people as others and respect them as difference. And so we get frustrated when we're not doing agape love with people. We get frustrated because people are not doing what we think they're supposed to do, quote unquote. They're not seeing things from my perspective. Why don't they just get it? Why don't they just understand this is how it should be? But love, agape, Paul says, is patient and kind with others. Think about your relationships. Think about your work relationships, your home relationships, your neighborhood relationships. Wood ones are, are doing really well. They're in an I-thou relationship. Which ones are looking more like an I-it relationship? How might the Holy Spirit want to reshape and reform those relationships into relationships that are flowing with this agape love that is honoring people as difference? Third and final here, love lifts us from weariness. Not only is this just the greatest command, and this is the call above everything else we do in the Christian life to love, not only is this agape love something that helps us honor people as others, the final here is that love lifts us from weariness. Something profound happens when we begin to have I-thou relationships with people. 
Uh, Martin Buber says that the space between you becomes sacred space where the manifest presence of God is able to be encountered. Because it is impossible for us to do I-thou relationships without the Holy Spirit work, right? This isn't something we produce on our own, remember. This is the fruit of the Spirit. This is the outflow of us remaining connected to Jesus. And he's teaching us in times, how are you going to approach this conflict? How are you going to handle your child that's having this or that outburst? How are you going to agape in this situation with your neighbor? And it leads us to this third of love lifting us from weariness because when the presence of God is in that sacred space, we begin to meet God in really, really tangible ways. I I have found that there is a limit to experiencing God privately on my own in my own prayer time or, or in a corporate worship setting like this where, where you know, the music's going and I, it feels inspirational and I feel God's presence. That those are all good and we need to develop and grow in those disciplines, those spiritual disciplines, reading my Bible. But I have found that there's a ceiling you hit really quickly if you are not also learning how to be disciplined in those I-thou relationships and actually meeting other people where they are at. Because there's something profound about how God reveals himself in community and in relationships that he doesn't do when you're doing things solo. There's time for solitude, but there's also time for community. And so we need both of these. And here's where this love lifting us from weariness comes in. I have found that when I am submitting myself to friends, when I am not pushing my own agenda, when I am living in in these I-thou relationships, when I'm living out of agape love, I find that love is lifting me out of weariness. Because when I begin to do the I-it relationship, I'm not only looking at other people as machines and uh, tools to be used. I begin to see myself that way. Utilitarian. I just need to get this thing done just like everyone else just needs to get this done. But when I pull back from that and treat other people differently, I find that I want myself to be treated differently and I'm treating myself differently. And just as I'm seeing others as bearing the image of God, I begin to see me bearing the image of God. And when I see me bearing the image of God, not only am I extending love, I find myself receiving love from the Father in a way that I couldn't when I was twisting these relationships. And so Paul writes this, he says, love never gives up, love never loses faith, it's always hopeful, it endures through every circumstance. When we are honoring people as difference, there's something about receiving the love of God that begins to happen in us where we don't give up, where We don't lose faith where we're always hopeful, where we endure every circumstance. Love begins to lift us out of our weariness. How many of you have wanted to give up in the last year at any point? How many of you have wanted to lose faith in the last year at any point? How many of you have felt hopeless or you didn't want to go on at some point in this last year? You wanted to give up on that relationship. You wanted to give up on your faith. You wanted to give up on your job. You wanted to give up on your life. This is a love 
that we're talking about here that can lift you out of weariness. When we begin to order our lives in this way, when we begin to live connected to God himself. You see, an eros love can't lift you from your weariness. An eros love can give you a hit of oxytocin to your brain, but it cannot lift you out of your weariness. A phileo love, it can be nice to have someone with you in your misery, but they can't lift you out of it. That's not their responsibility to do, especially if they're loving you well in an I-thou relationship. But agape, it never gives up. It's a love that's always hopeful, it endures. It's, It's something that can only come from the Holy Spirit being at work from the inside out of your life. When we're connected to God himself, we begin to experience this wellspring of delight and approval from him that we cannot find anywhere else. And let me tell you, when you begin to feel that kind of approval and experience that kind of approval from your heavenly Father, you're able to keep going. You're able to endure. You're able to not give up. It might feel like you are between a rock and a hard place right now. It might feel like you're at rock bottom, but that's a good thing because it means all of your pretense has been stripped away. When you're at rock bottom, it means that uh, you clearly can't perform in your own strength to do whatever it is. And it's amazing to receive God's love in that moment because you know, I did nothing for this. I couldn't perform my way into receiving God's love and acceptance and affirmation. I I couldn't prove to him that I was enough to him. I couldn't do enough things at church. There's literally nothing I could do. I can barely get out of bed. Yet he is showing his love to me right now. And when you receive love that is not based on anything you do or ever can do, and you can never lose it or keep it, In your own power, you keep going. You keep going. It sets you free. It sets you free from having to perform, to prove yourself, from trying to make anything happen in your own strength. Living your life in the the carpos, the fruit, the, the harvest of love that comes from the Holy Spirit, folks. This is everything for us as believers. This is where we find success. Jesus, in that passage, when he's describing the the vine and the branches, he says, remain in me. A little later on, he says it again, but he changes the words. And you know what he says? He says, remain in my love. Remain in my love. This is it. Remain in my love. Stay connected to me. Be joined to me. And you're going to see fruit like love. Joy, peace, patience, all these things. You're going to see this harvest come out of your life because you're staying close to me. Not because you earned it, not because you're good enough to be here, but because I love you. That's it. Because of the work Jesus did on the cross, you are set free and loved. So as we close, I invite the band to come back up. I just want to bring you back to this picture of a grapevine one more time that Jesus was talking about. Isn't that a beautiful vineyard? It's in Portugal or something, I think. You ever ever spend any time in a vineyard? You ever spend any time, even like we've got the Warwick Winery up here and Applewood, I think, winery, and a few different wineries up here. There's lots of different places. Go look 
Go over there. Go take a walk through some time. Go look at them. Contemplate uh, what we're talking about today. And here's why. One of the things I notice whenever I see, like, on travel shows, a winery, or I drive by one or something like that, I, I look at these vineyards, and there's something that stands out to me above everything else. You notice how all of these grapevines are, like, almost identical? Like, the whole way down? There, there's almost, like, a, a perfect symmetry about them. They're all about the same height, same size, all of that. Have you ever wondered why, or do you just assume it looks nice? It looks the best, so that's why they did it. Did you know there's actually a really practical reason why they do this? So I didn't know this, but grapevines can actually grow to about 115 feet tall. Did you know that? You ever seen a 115-foot-tall grapevine, though? No, I never have either. Now, my thinking is, why not just grow a 115-foot-tall grapevine? Wouldn't you get a ton of grapes from that? Right? That's, that's what my thinking was. You get an apple tree, make the apple tree bigger, you get more apples. It doesn't work like that with grapevines, apparently. Grapevines, it, 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 would, it would work like that kind of initially, but when you, uh, when you would do that and let the grapevine grow, you would get a ton of grapes in that first season, but they would be really poor quality. You couldn't use them for wine, couldn't use them for anything. You have to throw them out. And it would actually ruin the vine for future seasons so you couldn't use those vines anymore because there's not enough vegetation being pruned back. It doesn't have enough energy to keep going. It's done. So they will actually prune grapevines up to 90% of what they could possibly grow to. So you never see grapevines more than about 11 feet tall, somewhere between 8 and 11 feet. So that's why they all look identical because there's a specific height that they have found where you can produce the maximum yield of the highest quality grapes. It's about 11 feet. That is where you find maximum grape yield. You get the best flavor in the grapes, the best tasting wine. It is where the fruit is successful. Now, I think this is interesting because the world's definition of success is usually about bigger and better, right? Flashier, larger, make it seen, Make sure people know that's where the influence is. But when it comes to grapevines, bigger is not better. The goal of grapevines is not taller, more. The goal is maximum fruitfulness. We're fooled often to thinking in our culture that that if we do more, if we become more, if we live a bigger life, a flashier life, whatever it is, uh, that we're going to be more successful. And what Jesus is saying in this passage, because every single one of these branches gets pruned, what Jesus is saying is you uh, growing more or accomplishing more or having more is not more. Success for you is maximum fruitfulness, which means we got to chop about 90% out of your life that you think you're supposed to have. That's the illustration that Jesus is making here. Now, I think about my life, and I think about what I want to achieve. I think about my dreams, and God calls us to things. Dreams are good, but as we go through this series, and I'm thinking for myself as well, I I want you to think about this image. Think about the fruit of that God wants to bring in your life, the success that God wants to bring in your life through the Spirit. And think about how the Holy Spirit might want to challenge you. 
we should cut this branch. There's, there's some love missing here. You know, I, I know that you're reaching for this thing here and you're trying to grow in that direction, but I think it's going to ruin your joy. You know, there, there's this thing here that needs to get pruned. I understand that you see some short-term benefits of that, but it's going to kill your kindness. As we go through this series this summer, I just want to challenge you. Consider, how does the Holy Spirit want to prune you? Not to make your life miserable. This is important. We are pruned. Why? So we can produce more fruit. Jesus says the branches that produce fruit get pruned too. So that they can produce even more fruit. There's something God wants to do in your life. Even through the pruning, through the discomfort, through the pain. To bring maximum fruitfulness and maximum success the way he defines it. It was great having you with us today. We do hope that this sermon inspired you to know Christ and make him known. For more sermons and resources, please visit us at theplantchurch.org.